Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. And prepare to be surprised. As we discuss the recent Heredity paper, pedigree-based phylogenetic methods support surprising patterns of mutation rate and spectrum in the grey mouse lemur. This paper is the product of an amazing collaboration, and the story behind its journey from initial conception to publication is, I promise, incredible. It involves a fabulous house party, friendship, and the scandalous sex lives of some mouse lemurs. But I'll let the authors explain. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please all introduce yourselves? I'll start. Um, I'm Ann Yoder. I'm a professor of biology at Duke University in the United States, and uh, I've been studying lemurs for a very long time. Oh, hello. So I'm Mario Dos Reis. I'm senior lecturer of bioinformatics at Queen Mary University of London, and I do research in phylogenetic methods. My name is George Tiley. I'm a postdoctoral scientist working in Ann Yoder's lab at Duke University, and I work on molecular evolution in various organismal groups, including mouse lemurs. Perfect. Well, welcome all, and thank you for joining me. And I guess you've mentioned quite a few things there about phylogenetics and lemurs, and I guess the first one that we could start with is the more adorable one, which is the grey mouse lemurs that this paper focuses on. So can you just tell us a bit about them and why they're interesting? Well, I'll take this one to start and others can chime in, of course. So I'm basically obsessed with mouse lemurs and they're they're actually good reasons beyond the fact that they're adorable, that I'm obsessed with them. So they are biologically absolutely fascinating. And first of all, I should clarified that gray mouse lemurs are just one species out of more than 20. And all mouse lemurs are called mouse lemurs because they're the world's smallest primates. They weigh about 60 grams. Uh, They fit in the palm of your hand and they are nocturnal animals. So, you know, you can only see them at night. They have various sort of physiological abilities that I find of great interest. For one, they can torpor or hibernate even, depending upon the environmental conditions. They can just kind of crash out for a day or two or even weeks at a time. And they are also very uh, revved up as far as reproductive output for a primate in the sense that they are reproductively mature at one year of age or even younger in different environmental conditions. Um, and they tend to have two to three offspring at a time. So there's very high reproductive output but they only reproduce once a year and it's at a very tight seasonal framework and the females are actually only reproductively receptive for about a day. So it's really, yeah, so it's a a tight target to hit. Um, So, you know, so there are all these sort of ecological, physiological aspects of their biology that I find really interesting. They also, I mean, have some relevance to human health in the sense that they develop something very much like Alzheimer's disease upon aging, and they have plaques and tangles and so on. So there are certain uh, research groups that are interested in them as a model for Alzheimer's disease. But why I am really interested in them is this whole question of how many species are there? Why have they speciated so abundantly? And this is particularly interesting because they are what we would call sort of classic cryptic species in the sense that morphologically and ecologically, they're almost identical to our eyes, you know, from what we can see. But the way that we can determine the fact that they're 
phylogenetically, evolutionarily diverged is through, you know, their genomes. So this is what I think brings us, this is the the tie that binds us as a group of investigators is this fact that genetics is our really only, you know, the best way to get at these questions of speciation. And finally, so we want to know what drove this radiation. And of course, that has a lot to do with the environmental conditions at a particular time in history. So we want to know when this radiation began. So we, you know, this is really what prompted, you know, this was the spark that prompted the study in the first place is like, when did they start evolving? They sound like amazing animals, and yeah, I recommend anybody should go and Google them and just see what they're like. But you were kind of hinting there that this paper isn't really about the grey mouse lemur per se. So what is it actually focused on? So we investigate two primary aspects of how mutations can occur in a single generation, and meaning those that are passed directly on from parents to their offspring. First, we study the rate of mutation. And that's going to be very pertinent to this idea of when did mouse lemurs radiate, putting speciation of mouse lemurs into some absolute time scale. And second, we also look at the frequency of different types of mutations. And this is interesting because right now there's a very rich body of literature documenting that some mutations are more prevalent than others. This is in part explained by differences in DNA repair mechanisms but can also be caused by other effects, such as deamination, which is mentioned at several points in the paper. They sound like really interesting questions that you're aiming at, and I'm, I'm really curious about how you went about tackling them. But first, I hear that there's a really interesting story about how this entire project got started. So what is the origin story? Well, I'll start here and then hand it to Mario, because we can blame it on Mario, really. <laughs> so... Uh, this was, I think, at the summer of 2017, so quite a few years ago at this point. And Mario and his wife, Fabricia, had just become engaged and they were visiting the United States. And Mario and I are dear friends and colleagues for a, a number of years now. And so I took my entire lab to the beach and we rented this really fabulous house in Riceville Beach in North Carolina. We called it the movie star house because it was really quite extravagant. And so we were talking about divergence time estimation and mouse lemurs and so on and so forth. And Mario <laughs> made a comment that started this whole thing. So at this point, I'll let Mario tell his side of the story. <laughs> yeah, I think I suggested, you know, why, why don't we sequence the genomes of parents and offspring in the, in the mouse lemur colony and we count the number of mutations to get an estimate of the mutation rate? So I'm, I was always I'm being very keen on this question because I work on developing methods of the molecular clock. So if we have good estimates of mutation rates, we can use that to calibrate evolutionary trees to geological time. So that's, that was why I was interested in this. And all my work is computational. I mean, I don't do any well lab experiments or sequencing myself. So there I was with Anne and other research group, and they love sequencing, and they have access to this amazing colony at the Duke Limor Center. And I thought, hey, I mean, this is such a simple thing to do, you know, sequence the pattern, sequence the offspring. <laughs> all you have to do is count the number of differences. I mean, boy, were we completely wrong with this. <laughs> because the, <laughs> the point is we neither of us have ever done this kind of work before so we were very naive when we approached this and i think it's fair to say Anne has now very quickly become one of the world experts on, 
on how to do this because no. with all the Try. all the stumbling blocks that we we, we met um, to get this done. No, but the the truly, I mean, what makes us both laugh is re- recollecting Mario's statement. Oh, this will be easy. <laughs> I think I think it's sort of famous last words for uh, any time you get scientists in a room together in a social situation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I mean, it, it sounds like it's a really cool idea. And I'm very intrigued by what you're hinting at there about it maybe being a bit more difficult than you might have expected to begin with. So you had your team, you had your questions. What is it that you actually did? Well, as Mario hinted, we sequenced the complete genomes of two parents and their offspring, and that would be what we call a trio. And ideally, all you need to do is identify mutations present in the child that are absent in both parents. The tricky part of this business is that, one, sequencing errors can occur. So differentiating true mutations from those errors can actually be a bit difficult. And two, you're ultimately using millions of sequencing reads with varying coverage across the genome to identify what are high-quality sites that we can call and that we can't call, and determining what are the best criteria for a high-quality site takes a little bit of patience, and you have to tweak these various filters. And when you look at the results, it can actually impact the number of mutations and ultimately the estimated mutation rate quite greatly. And then one aspect of our study is that we went into ours with two trios. Now, for comparison, in human studies, you might have over a thousand trios that you investigate these types of mutation rate questions with. And that, in part, speaks to the difficulty of breeding mouse lemurs in captivity. (laughs) So, yeah, let me throw in here. So we actually were fairly without even knowing as much at the time, we were fairly advanced in our thinking about how to design the study with regard to the individuals that were to be sequenced um, because it's becoming quite clear that to have a third generation, so you have grandparents and their offspring and then their offspring, having that third generation allows you to observe the heritability of these perceived you know, de novo mutations. And that is a a biological test of a sort of a computational assay, if you will. So we we actually had designed the study so that we had a great grandfather and, you know, we had multiple generations, but everything about the study sort of hinged on this great grandfather. His name was Pesto. And (laughs) so we sequenced Pesto and various of his offspring and descendants, we thought. And then once we had the (laughs) genomes, guess what? Pesto wasn't related at all to these reported (laughs) offspring. And this is where we get into mouse lemur sex. If your audience can bear hearing about mouse lemur sex, if that's not too R-rated. So in nature, they have very active male-male competition for the females, and that's part of the deal. You know, So they're sperm competitors, and the male-male competition is very much part of the dating process, if you will. So to mimic that at the Duke Lemur Center, what they do is they house two males 
next door to the soon to be receptive female, but they cannot access her and vice versa. (laughs) And so leading up to her receptivity, the males become more agitated and they fight. And the assumption is that whoever is the dominant male is going to be, you know, the (laughs) successful breeder. And in the pesto's case, not only was he dominant, he was observed embracing, if you will, <laughs> the, the, the mother. Um, so they, of course, made the assumption that he was the, the father. Well, it turns out that Asparagus, who was his roommate at the time, was actually the successful uh, sire. So he had somehow snuck in there and, uh, you know, Done the deed. <laughs> what a scandal! <laughs> I want to very scandalous indeed, uh, very scandalous. But anyway, so we lost our pyramid, and so this is why we sort of reduced down to the generations and trios that we had. I, I love those names as well. I have to say, Pesto and Asparagus. <laughs> why not? Why not? Indeed. Okay, so I mean, it sounds like a really interesting process in your methods there. And I'm kind of curious about what you actually found in this study. So what were some of the key things that you discovered? I think there were kind of two surprising aspects of mutations in mouse lemurs. One was that the mutation rate was actually quite high, or at least higher than maybe I would have anticipated. For comparison, we might observe in humans, it's something like 1 times 2 times 10 to the negative 8 mutations per site per generation. But in the case of mouse lemurs, this was really closer to around 1.5. And it gets into some difficulties of comparing across species because it turns out that the age of the father can actually have a large effect on the number of mutations in a generation, such that older fathers tend to pass on more mutations to their offspring. And in our case, the, the father was at least a bit old for mouse lemurs. So that would be one, is that the mutation rate was actually a bit higher than expected. But even if we are willing to accept there's some error in that estimation, if we use that rate to calibrate the speciation times between mouse lemurs, it implies they're much more recent than previously thought. So rather than on a scale of millions of years, these would be on the scale of ten to thousands to hundreds of thousands of years, speciation events that would coincide with Pleistocene climate change in Madagascar. Perhaps a second very surprising feature was that the CPG to TPG mutations that are often explained by deamination of methylated cytosines occurred in equal frequency to the C to T mutations at non-CPG sites. Right, So these would not be due to these methylation and deamination effects. In any other animal studied so far with these approaches, the CPG to TPG mutations are often quite a bit higher. And this was surprising enough to where we decided we needed to bring in some additional methods to try and validate this result. And that's where we brought in some phylogenetic models that allow us to look at rates of evolution of different substitution types that allow us to avoid a lot of those errors that can be propagated when studying mutations on a per-generation basis. It's also notable, as George just mentioned, that the expectation is that the father is going to contribute more of these mutations than the mother. 
And that's been observed in a number of lineages. But in our case, that paternal bias didn't exist, or it was very, very low. Ah, fascinating. Uh, so, I mean, the results are super interesting, but I guess they might be focused heavily more towards, say, phylogenetics and speciation, the kind of concepts you're talking about. And I mean, I have a background in these areas, and I know they're not always the most appreciated parts of biology. So I wonder why you think the results that you're finding are important. Well, yeah, so there's, I guess, at least in my case, which I'm so interested in, in determining evolutionary time scales, it is surprising that to see that phylogenetics seems to be a bit underappreciated. But I think people, you know, slowly are coming to realize that all evolutionary processes happen along the branches of evolutionary trees. So if we can estimate an evolutionary tree accurately, then we can use that tree as a framework to model all these different processes in evolution. Uh, and what I've been particularly interested in is in how we calibrate these molecular trees that we estimate using um, genomes, how we can calibrate them to geological time. Because when we do that, we can then place all these speciation events, as George was mentioning, in context with past geological events such as climate change or mass extinction events and all that. And I think one of the important results here is that by obtaining these, well, what we hope are accurate estimates of the mutation rate, we can move towards a more accurate calibration of these evolutionary time scales in these evolutionary trees. In the particular case of the lemurs, this is extremely important because lemurs have no fossil record to speak of. So traditionally, to calibrate an evolutionary tree, you will look at the past fossil record and you use that to calibrate the nodes and then get a, an initial estimate of the dates of the speciation for some parts of the evolutionary tree. And then you put all that together and they give you the time scale for the whole tree. But for lemurs, these fossil records is completely non-existent. So it's incredibly important to have these estimates of the mutation rate. That really is. And, and in a previous paper that we had written, because we did not have this mutation rate estimate, we had to guess what the mutation rates for the mouse lemurs were. So we took an estimate from humans, uh, and we took an estimate from common mice, and we said, okay, humans are primates, like mouse lemurs. Uh, you know, the common mouse is a small body mammal, so which is, you know, in body size and, and metabolism should be similar to mouse lemur. So we guessed that the mutation rate had to be in between. And using that guess, we do an analysis, we estimate the time scale. But it turns out, as George said, that the estimate of the mutation rate was higher, so it actually fell outside of that initial <laughs> estimate in a previous paper. So that previous time scale we calculate appears to be wrong. So we we have a new one that, that came into this paper that just shows that things are much younger. So, and this is the, obviously shows the challenges of doing this, and, and obviously how you then correlate these exposition events with past climate, um, you know, or, or forest cover in Madagascar, and all these issues that are playing into people's minds. I think is really critical. I think that's that's also a very good explanation of why I've avoided doing these kind of analyses in the past <laughs> when I was doing very similar work. Um, so I mean, it's it's obviously there's tons in this paper and it's really interesting and there's a lot that people could take from it. And I wonder what the three of you think is the sort of key message that you're hoping readers are going to take from it. So what are you hoping that people are going to gain from this study? Well, I'll jump in and say, I hope one of the messages is that people should be prepared to be surprised that because a result is surprising and unexpected doesn't make it wrong. And in fact, this whole field of de novo mutation rate estimation is very, very early days. The sampling across the tree of life is very poor. So 
we acknowledge fully that the computational aspects are extremely challenging and there's a lot of room for error. But I also just want to emphasize that we really don't know what the parameters are that we should expect to observe because we just don't have the sampling across the tree of life yet. And and I'd say the message is actually a quite positive one. I tend to be on the optimistic side, even though we're properly critical of some approaches in the paper. We also show that you can really take different methodological approaches here and still hit in the same ballpark. So I think that's what I would say, is to not be afraid of these types of de novo mutation analyses. And even though we were initially skeptical of some of our initial results, we managed to validate them with a completely independent method. So I leave this whole experience feeling quite good about the future of this field for investigating diverse groups of species. And I will add that, yes, in my point of view, having these very good estimates of mutation rates are critical to get these timescales right. So because we can move, I mean, you know, we can look at, you know, the evolution of the mutation rate and the spectrum of the mutations and all that, but all that needs to be correlated with an evolutionary tree to understand that. So I think that's also a key important finding that we had. And just one last comment about the importance of the results is that, you know, these early days hypotheses and expectations are often based in life history traits. So there's a real uh, expectation that certain aspects of the way organisms reproduce, how long they live, and so on, uh, will influence these mutation rates. And so we're very deeply interested as biologists to see if this holds up. And if so, what are the rules and what, you know, and that helps us really calibrate our expectations for what we should observe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I guess also paternity tests would be another good message. (laughs) 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 But It really is. It's a wonderful paper. I really enjoyed reading it and also your blog post that you wrote on it as well. Um, And hopefully people will now go and read your study and hopefully gain quite a lot from it. And just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind us what it's called and also just give a shout out to anybody else who was important in bringing us this work. So our paper is called Pedigree-based and phylogenetic methods support surprising patterns of mutation rate and spectrum in the gray mouse lemur. And the first author is Ryan Campbell, then myself, Yelmer Polstra, Kelsey Honeycutt, Peter Larson, Huijie Lee, Jeff Thorne, Mario Dosreis, and Ann Yoder. And so in particular, I would, well, I, I want to thank the Yoder Lab. So Kelsey and Yelmer and Peter all members of the Yoder Lab, and we're there around the table when Mario said it would promise us it would be easy. But I particularly <laughs> want to shout out to Ryan Campbell. His published name is C. Ryan Campbell, but we call him Ryan. He was sort of searching for a dissertation project at the time, and he is computationally very gifted. And so we were all realizing that, you know, nobody had time to do this. And, you know, none of us had the real computational chops to take it on. So we all just kind of looked at Ryan and said, Ryan, why don't you take it and run with it? And he surely did. And so this was the foundation for his dissertation project. And he just did a, I mean, he really hung in there through some tough times with data analysis. And George joined the team a little later and sort of brought in the, you know, explicit 
phylogenetic, well, Mario, of course, is very talented phylogeneticist, but George, he's co-first author with Ryan. And uh, so George brought in the phylogenetic perspective, and it was his idea to add some other authors, and he will explain. I think it's actually quite special. Jeff Thorne is involved in this paper, who has developed many fundamental aspects of clock models and studies of molecular evolution. And it was originally his method that Huey J. Lee had implemented that we used to study the context-dependent substitution rates. So that independent phylogenetic method I was talking about that allowed us to validate some of those de novo mutation studies. And I feel like they've done really important work in developing those models and was very happy that we were able to use them here to pair with these de novo methods. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and if I add, so Jeff, he in 2012 was already war- thinking about using this de novo race for divergence time estimation because when I visited him in North Carolina State University, that's when he was the person who started talking about this to me. So I was not aware of that, and he was talking about mm-hmm. how these de novo mutations would be really cool. So he was the person who put the seed in my idea, which then exploded when I, I told, <laughs> oh, why don't we do this? So he's, he's been a, a very early adopter of all this, actually. Excellent. Well, thank you to all of those people for the wonderful study and to the three of you for joining us and uh, explaining all about this work. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks to Anne, George and Mario. You can find their paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.